The New Testament reading this morning is from uh, the Revelation of St. John. It is the entire 12th chapter, and it is the sermon text. Uh, Do your best to stay with me. Uh, This is quite the ride. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan and deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand at the sea. This is the word of the Lord. I read an article a couple years ago around this time about a woman um, who lived in, you know, one of those neighborhoods where they just go crazy for Christmas, like all of the houses are just decked out. It's almost like they're competing against each other. Maybe they are competing against each other. I don't know. But she wasn't about it, um, wasn't a fan, uh, maybe, I don't know, not very Christmassy, at least in the traditional sense. And so she put a um, you know, those blow-up decorations, like they have blow-up Santas and stuff you can put in your yard. She had a blow-up dragon in her yard. Um, and her neighbors did not appreciate this. Her neighbors uh, anonymously, of course, wrote her a letter that said, hey, that's not Christmassy, that's not what our neighbor, you know, neighborhood is about. Please take them down. You know, we hope that you learn the true meaning of Christmas, right? And so this woman um, in an act that I feel like I would probably do as well. Um, instead of taking the dragon down, put more dragons up, and she got more letters. So her yard was full of dragons, and eventually she put, like, Santa hats on them just to be cute, and her yard was full of Christmas dragons. Um, and I, I was kind of reading this, and, you know, a little, I guess in a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, I imagined myself, you know, walking over to her house with Revelation 12 open and saying in my corniest youth pastor voice, you know... Dragons have more to do with the true meaning of Christmas than your neighbors might realize, right? Welcome to what might be one of the weirder Advent sermons that you've um, heard. Um, We're looking at Revelation 12 today, which uh, Bruce read. Uh, I'm going to refer to the whole chapter, but I'm really just going to zone in on verses 1 through 6. So if you want to keep that open, that'd probably be helpful. Revelation, it's not a book that we typically associate with Advent or Christmas, um, but when I was walking through this text this week, um, I, I came to realize that this, this is pretty much a perfect Advent text. Um, because Advent in church history, um, as, it, as it's functioned in the church calendar, um, has typically been not primarily looking forward to Christmas, the first arrival, but it's primarily been used as um, something in the church calendar to where we're, we're looking forward to Christ's second coming. And um, we're, we're hoping and we're waiting, just like um, the people in the Old Testament before Jesus, waiting on the Messiah. We're waiting for Jesus to come back um, and make everything right. Um, so we, we, wait on, we wait on that, um, and, then, and then we follow that up with a celebration of his first coming in Christmas. Um, and really, this passage is doing both of those things. Um, this passage is looking at what was prior to the first Arrival. What 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 was the world of you know the first advent before the first arrival that Jesus stepped into? It's looking at that from like a hundred miles up. So whereas Luke was looking at you know what was happening before and the nativity with a microscope and just zeroing in on the events, um, this vision that John is given 
in Revelation 12 is looking from 100 miles up with a telescope and saying, what's going on here? And it's looking at the, the cosmic realities at play um, behind the historical events. Eugene Peterson uh, was talking about this passage and he said, it's not the nativity that you grew up with, but it's still the nativity nonetheless. Um, so we're going to be looking at this because the purpose here is the purpose of, of Advent, which is hoping and waiting Hoping and waiting. That's the overall message of, of Revelation is hope. It's that Jesus wins. Jesus conquered and all those who are united to Jesus in faith are called to conquer with him as well. Like the darkness of the Advent winter, Revelation it can be scary. It can be a book that scares us and it can be confusing. But when we embrace it, it can give us a hope unlike any other. So we're going to look at the characters that we see here. We're going to look at the woman. We're going to look at the dragon, and we're going to look at the sun, and we're going to answer three questions with that. What was the reality of Advent, the first Advent? What was the reality of the world that Jesus was born into? Why was Jesus born, and how does that change our reality and give us hope? So, first, we're going to talk about the woman. Um, So, if you want to look with me at uh, verse 1, let's ask, who is she? Who is she? Um, the, the kind of answer that immediately jumps out to you is Mary, right? Because this is about the birth of Jesus. You know, we just sung a song about, um, about Mary and, uh, we, we, we read about her, but the more you look at this passage, the more it's actually, it, it doesn't look like it's Mary, at least directly. Um, it doesn't look like the woman is Mary. Um, so first, this is a vision from John. So if, if it's a vision, it means that he's not, He's not doing too many literal things here, right? Um, I'm sorry to break it to you. There's no actual, actual like physical dragon um, that he's talking about. This is a vision, and these are signs that he's given. And it says this is a great sign of a woman. So this isn't a real pregnant mom, but this is figurative for something else. But what is that? Read with me in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So numbers are super important in, you know, apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. Um, 12 is almost always in Revelation associated with the 12 tribes of Israel. This is Israel. The woman is Israel, the people of God. The moon and the stars that she's um, clothed, she's clothed with the moon um, and, uh, or sorry, she's clothed with the sun and the moon is under her feet. And that's probably a reference to, um, how the church functions, the people of God functions as the, the bearer of the hope of creation. Revelation eight twenty two says the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. So the woman in this passage groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So all the purposes of creation are, are tied up into this woman to God's people. And she's in danger. Look at me at verse two. She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains in the agony of given birth. Notice the, the repetition here. It doesn't just say birth pains. It already says birth pains. And then it says the agony of giving birth. Another word for agony there is torment. She was tormented at this point. She was tormented before the birth of Jesus. So this passage, it's actually starting a new half. A whole new section of 
the book of Revelation because chapters 1 through 11 in Revelation are all about the people of God suffering, the people of God being persecuted, the people of God being mowed down and pursued, the hardness of the world that they were living in. And almost all of the imagery and numbers in in this chapter are either coming from Daniel, which is a prophetic book to the persecuted people of God in the Old Testament, or it was a, uh, or they are imagery um, or uh, just borrowing words and language from Exodus, which is, you know, a book about the people of God in slavery and being delivered from slavery. The woman, the people of God are in torment here. She'd been beaten, exiled, pushed around, pursued. And when she was, you know, when she went back home, right, when, when Israel came back from the exile, they were then under Roman rule. It made it difficult for Israel, for the people of God to live out, for this woman to live out her faith and worship. She was laying in painful wait for someone to come and bring relief. Though the church in places like Syria and Afghanistan might identify with this a little bit more directly than we do. You know, we don't experience persecution in the same sharp ways as they do. But at the same time, we shouldn't act like, um, we, 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 shouldn't act like we don't experience the hardness of life in a world that wasn't built for the flourishing of our faith. That wasn't built for us to live faithfully and abundantly in Jesus We experience the difficulty of stewarding money sacrificially and wisely in a consumeristic society that plays on, you know, the dopamine hits that we get when we click add to cart, thinking, this will make me happy, at least for a little bit. This will make me happy, right? We experience the struggles and the sorrows of trying to follow our Savior's commands about sexual faithfulness in a pornified and sexualized culture. We experience the awkward and exhausting disjuncture between a workaholic, efficiency-addicted society, and then still trying to walk in this Sabbath rest that we're called to. We experience the identity crisis of, of living in a world built around the idea that you are your own and you belong to yourself, while we're trying to, with white knuckles, hold on to the truth that we are not our own and we belong to Jesus. I could go on and on, right? There's tons of ways that This world makes it hard to live out our faith, but, you know, we don't experience these physical attacks, but trying to live as a Christian puts us at odds with the system that we live in. It feels like we're in a system and it's painful to go against it. It'd be easier just to go with the flow, right? It's, it's easy to feel like we're pushed around, like we're in a rudderless sailboat. The wind's just pushing us where it wants to, or like we're a ball in a pinball machine. But that's, that's, the, that's the world that we're living in. It's easier to give in. It's hard to live out our faith. Why is that? The next verses peel back the curtain for us. Like I said, one through, chapters 1 through 11 in Revelation about the church is about the church's earthly struggle, the earthly difficulty of living in the world. And the end, the last verse in chapter 11 says, God's te- in this vision that John was given, God's temple was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. The curtain was li- literally being pulled back on the spiritual realities at play here. Now's the point in the vision where the veil's pulled back and John sees that there's a cosmic spiritual struggle behind the earthly struggle. So let's talk about the dragon in the room. 
Look with me at verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. So again, this is a, it's another sign. This is imagery. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. I won't go into all the imagery here in detail, but basically this means that the dragon has power and authority. The dragon has power and authority. We'll get into what the authority looks like in a second. Um, but it's also a little hard to hear, hard here, even in this verse, to miss. This is saying, dragon bad. The dragon is bad, right? We have some movies and books now with good dragons, you know. How to, this is not a how to train your dragon dragon, right? When a dragon shows up in ancient literature, something bad is about to go down, right? So who is the dragon? Fortunately for us, John's vision actually gives us this one. It gives us a free, uh, you know, blank space here. Um, verse 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So it makes that, makes that very, very plain, right? So behind the earthly struggle that they have, there, there's, there's spiritual, cosmic evil. And we're going to see it's, it's in a, it's in a war. There's a war going on. There's a, there's a spiritual cosmic struggle behind the earthly struggle. So I want to just give an aside here just for a second, um, stepping out of the text. If you're listening to this and you don't believe, you know, maybe you um, stepped in here wanting to hear, you know, a cute Christmas sermon and you're li- listening to me talk about dragons. I'm sorry. Um, but if you're here and you don't believe or you're doubting, you, you think you believe, but you're, you're kind of doubting or, you know, you're not sure what you believe. Um, this actually might be one of the harder things to swallow here. Satan. Um, belief in Satan. I've had non-Christian friends and Christian friends that have kind of, that, this has been kind of a stumbling block of Christianity, which in a way I'm like, you know, I believe way crazier stuff than this. But in another way, I, I, I kind of get it because it, it, it sounds the idea that there's, you know, this, this evil personality behind, you know, some wicked things. It's working on it, it, working behind the scenes, and we can't really see him. It sounds kind of fairy taleish, right? It can sound kind of fairy taleish, like you know, like the Bible had a good guy and it needs a bad guy, and you know, might might be a stumbling block to some people. If you know me well, you know that um, I am a big fan of the Twilight Zone, the black and white show from the fifties and sixties, kind of you know, sci-fi ish. Uh, one of my favorite episodes from this show is about this educated scholar, and he's, he's traveling around a post-war country um, out in the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, the weather gets hard. He has to take shelter. He finds this castle. He goes up to the castle. Um, eventually, they, they let him in, and it's finds out it's occupied by this religious monastic order. There's a, and he finds out that, um, you know, he's staying there, and he finds this man who's imprisoned there. And he tries to, the man tries to convince this scholar that, you know, these religious people are crazy and, and, and he's innocent and they should, you know, he should let him out. The scholar confronts the head of the order who reluctantly tells him that, hey, this guy's actually the devil. So you probably, don't let this guy out. He's actually Satan himself. And the scholar is fully convinced that this religious order is crazy at this point um, and holding an innocent man against his will. So he goes and releases him, uh, the 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 man from his prison, and uh, the man walks out and is immediately revealed to be blah, 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 the devil, right? And 
he, he, the episode actually goes on to attribute, um, you know, that, that the devil was active behind the scenes after this guy let him out in World War II, and the Holocaust, and the Korean War, and the, the invention and use of nuclear weapons, and, and so on. All, all of these evil atrocities. And the thing that's kind of always stuck with me about that episode is that this is, you know, it was made by a guy named Rod Serling, who was an, he was a non-Christian. He, he wasn't a Christian. He was a, he was a secular humanist. And he wrote this, the story from the perspective of this educated man, this 20th century scholar. And the whole thing seems to show, like, look at the world. Look at the world just in the last 50 years that we were living in. The wars, the, the terror, the Holocaust. Even in this Western and secular and educated society, we have to admit that with the suffering, with the atrocities, with the torment, there's something, there's something that's very real about evil, right? It's not just, oh, I decided evil. I decided this is evil. This is good and this is evil. Or society got together and decided this is evil. There's something that feels, when you see something so, so, so wicked, like the Holocaust or like these wars, like it's apparent that evil is real. Evil, there's something ontologically, tangibly, objectively real. There's something objectively real about evil. And if you can get there with me, if you can, if you can kind of like see what I'm saying with that and, and feel that as you've, you know, even watched the news from the past week, if you can feel that reality of evil, I don't think we're too far apart from each other, right? I don't think it's too far down the road to say that if there's real, ontological, tangible evil, that there's some real evil personality behind that. I don't think we're, we're too far apart, at least. All right, so aside over, let's go back to verse 4. His tail, the dragon's tail, swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to earth. So stars in Revelation refer to angels. Um, so this is talking about Satan's rebellion. Um, so some angels rebelled with Satan in heaven against God, and, um, and they went out of heaven with him. That's what it's saying. Then here's a, here's a key part. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. I had a friend who was, who was doing um, a Christmas story. I think his friend was from seminary, and he was, he was doing a Christmas story at his church. And um, he had the kids walk through the nativity. Like, you know, he had this little nativity set. And he had the kids pointing out, there's, there's the donkey, you know. Well, what's this? Those are the wise men. And then he reaches behind his back. And he pulls out this big dragon plush toy. And he slams it down on the t- nativity. And he says, dragon and dragon. There's another character that we don't often see in the nativity. And he smashes it down right in front of Jesus. And that's how stark the Bible in this revelation to John is presenting this. A woman about to get, give birth, and instead of, you know, an OBGYN or whatever, ready to help deliver the baby, there's a dragon with an open mouth ready to devour it. And that's Advent. That's the dark reality before the, the arrival of Jesus. A dragon with the authority and power in the land that he's born into, ready to devour and before we get too far into explaining that situation, I want to look at the last character here, the son. So verse 5, she gave birth, Christmas, to a male child. 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's actually a reference to one of the Psalms, Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm about Jesus. And it's, you know, the New Testament, a lot of the New Testament writers, you look in Acts, uh, they, they make a lot out of this psalm because it's, it's very obviously um, talking about the Messiah. In that psalm, it says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. So, Lord, son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. So first we have a dragon here with authority and power. And it's talking about a son of God who has authority and power over the nations. You know, in most stories that have dragons, the hero that's fighting the dragon is usually like, I don't know, a shining knight or a knight in shining armor or someone with like special abilities. Um, I think Hercules fights a dragon or something, right? And, or at least you have like some hobbits or something, right? And here we have, who, who's supposed to be the hero here? Who's fighting this dragon? Who's standing up to this dragon? Baby. Baby. What's, what's going on here? Why did Jesus come and, and why is this dragon trying to eat him? To explain this, uh, we need to talk about a little theology, if you can hang on with me for just a second. Um, so since the New Testament, Christians are trying to, have, have kind of tried to figure out and succinctly explain, how do we go from the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, to you know, thousands of years ago, to us today being able to be saved? How, how do those connect? And those are usually called theories of atonement. Theories of atonement. How do, how do we get from the cross to us being saved? One of the most popular theories of atonement is, um, that we have today is penal substitution, which is, you know, basically, um, we're all hopefully very familiar with this. Jesus saved us by taking the wrath of God for our sins on the cross as our substitute so we can be forgiven. And that's the theory. I, th- I think it's most central in Scripture. I think it's most important for our understanding of the gospel. But it's not the only theory that there, that there has been. Um, for a long time in church history, that wasn't even the most prevalent theory. It was there, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't the highest up on people's minds. I think there are several theories of atonement, ways of explaining how we get saved from the cross that don't contradict that substitution view, but help give us a fuller picture of the gospel. And one of those that was actually more prevalent throughout much of church history is called ransom theory, the ransom theory of the atonement. And there's some kind of funky versions of it, but um, the Reformed theologian Charles Hodge does a a really good job of explaining it biblically in three points. So we're going to go through those three points. First point is man by sin became subject to the penalty of divine law. Man by sin became subject to the penalty of divine law. So we're going to do a little drawing activity together, if you want to humor me. So if you have a pen or pencil around you, um, feel free to grab that. And um, if you have another p- piece of paper that works or a liturgy, um, that, that, that's great. If you want to draw on your liturgy, I think that's okay. Um, so on, on your paper, according to your ability, you know, I expect more from the artists. Everybody else can draw a stick figure. Um, but draw a person. You can draw a stick figure. That's fine. So we're going to draw what Scripture says about the human in the state of sin. This is the human in the state of sin minus Jesus. So, you know, feel free to interpret these in your drawing as you want to. So I'm going to go through some things that the Scripture says about us under the penalty of divine law. 
So some of these are, a lot of these are from Romans 3. Their throat is an open grave. Their throat is an open grave. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They're darkened in their understanding. They're dead, for the wages of sin is death. It's Romans 6. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Slaves. Jeremiah says, Sin is written in a pen of iron engraved on the tablet of their heart. And then in Galatians 3 it says, Before Christ came, we were held prisoners. We were locked up until the faith, until faith was made known. I know I went pretty fast there, but you know, you get the picture. Minus God, minus God's grace, this is saying, that's you. That is you under the penalty of divine law. You are So many of those have to do with, you are incapacitated, you are slaves, you are prisoners, you are dead. Your your capacities don't function how they should. You are out of the game. That's you under the penalty for sin. The second point of ransom theory. Satan has the office, the authority, so the dragon, you know, has this authority, to inflict that divine penalty insofar as he is allowed to torment the children of man. This is Satan's authority. So, you know, you have this drawing. Picture, if you get crazy, you can draw this if you want. But picture a dragon over or in front of that person. A dragon is standing over his prisoner, holding them ransom. By our sin, he holds us ransom like we're prisoners of war. And he does this by and through our, our sin. Later on in verse 10, it says that Satan is the accuser of our brothers. Who accuses them day and night before our God. By our sin, he is holding us ransom. You may be reminded here of um, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. You know, Narnia by C.S. Lewis. There's a, ransom, there's a ransom theory of atonement in Narnia. So Edmund, um, if you've read this story before, Edmund um, is, is um, one of the siblings of this family group. And for some validation and for some Turkish delights... He betrays his siblings in Aslan. And so the white witch, who's the satanic figure in Narnia, says to Aslan, who's the Christ-like figure in Narnia, you have a traitor there, Aslan. You know, she's accusing him, just like Satan is the accuser of the brothers in verse 10. Aslan says, well, his offense was not against you. And then the witch asks, have you forgotten the deep magic? And Aslan replies, Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. The white witch replies, Then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Because of our sin, Satan has a claim on us. He has some amount of jurisdiction and authority. You might say, Well, don't we sing songs like this is my father's world? And yeah, we do. It is God's world, but... What we do in our sin and what Satan has done because of our sin is like a rebellion. It's a civil war. The land may officially belong to someone, but it's being claimed and contested by a rebel. And that's where Jesus comes in. 
That's where this baby comes in. He's coming, and, and yes, he comes as a vulnerable baby. But this isn't just saying, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, no crying does he make. This is saying that underneath the spiritual reality is this Jesus who is coming with a rod of iron that can smash the nations. This is an invasion. Christmas is an invasion into enemy territory, the realm of the dragon. God the Son comes to earth, and like the white witch thought she had Aslan, she thought, you know, she, she had Aslan right where she wanted, tied him up and killed him. And just like that, sin, death, and Satan thought they had Jesus. The dragon was ready to devour but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. There's a sort of bait and switch that, that Jesus does here. Just as the dragon is about, about to devour, which we can see is, you know, some of these events like Herod killing, killing the children. But ultimately, I think this is speaking about Jesus' death on the, on the cross. Just as the dragon is about to devour, Jesus dies on the cross. And sin, death, and Satan think they have him. And just as they think they have him, he was caught up to God and his throne, meaning he rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of God. And all this leads to the final, the third point in ransom theory. Christ, by his death, having satisfied the penalty of the law, has ransomed us from the power of Satan. We've been going through this you know, series on Hebrews, and I'm reminded of Hebrews 2. 14 to 15, where it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became, a, he became a person that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through who, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You were, you were ransomed, you were delivered, you were freed from your prison. The devil no longer has any claim on you. He loses his authority and his place in heaven to accuse God's people. And that's what happens later on in this passage after, after verse 6. He's given a death blow in heaven and his defeat is certain, but he's still actively pursuing the, the woman and her offspring, the church, as we see here. The nativity is an invasion. A lot like D-Day in World War II, the Normandy beaches were enemy-occupied territory. You know, they belonged to France, but, but Germany was occupying them there. And the Allied invasion on D-Day was a death blow to the Axis. It was a death blow to Germany. But it still took almost a year for the Nazis to um, actually surrender for the, for the war on Germany. Um, or the war Germany was uh, waging to actually end. The call, the constant call of Revelation... And the waiting for the second arrival, the second advent, is to conquer. The message is that Jesus wins. He invites us into battle. He invites us to conquer with him. It won't be easy, right? In verse 12, it says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. There is rejoicing in heaven because of the heavenly victory, but... He's still going to try to accuse. He's going to try to cause evil. He's going to try to prod the persecution of the church. And he's going to try to make living out our faith in this world as hard as he can. He's going to try to make living as a follower of Jesus hard in the environment we live in. So what does that mean for us? How do we conquer? Two things. 
The first is to be nourished by God and his grace while we wait for Jesus to come back. There's a constant refrain in this chapter of nourishment. After Jesus escapes the jaws of the dragon and ascends, in verse 6, we see the woman, God's people, flee to a place where they were protected by God for 1,260 days. Um, that's, that's kind of a, um, an apocalyptic number. It's from Daniel. It connects this with persecution. Um, back in the uh, previous chapter in Revelation 11, the church um, God's people were trampled, it says, for 1,260 days. So this is saying for, for the exact same amount of time that you were persecuted, you were, you're being held, you're being nourished, you're being protected. And in verse 14, when it says she was given eagle's wings, that's a, that's a call back to Exodus 20, where God says that I have brought you out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt, on eagle's wings. They leaned into God's grace in the gospel. Verse 11 says, and they have conquered him by their power. By their cunning? By their programs? By their ingenuity? No. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Be nourished by that gospel. Remember that gospel. But there's a second part to verse 11. For they love not their lives even unto death. They lived lives of risky faithfulness in a difficult world. The world as I described it before, you know, it, it, it doesn't change. There's still persecution. It's still hard. And we still live in a world that feels cold to us. We still live in a system that that fights back when we try to follow Jesus. Where it's hard sometimes to walk with Jesus. In every area of our lives, we see dragon, dragon claw prints. We see talon marks in the brokenness around us, on our phones, in our wallets, in the news, in our relationships, on our church doors. C.S. Lewis wrote, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wiretaps from your friends. That's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and our laziness and our intellectual snobbery. Yeah, there's a battle going on. Life is still hard, but you aren't that drawing anymore if you're in Christ. You aren't a prisoner anymore. You have been ransomed. You are no orphan. You are no victim. You are no pawn in someone else's war. You are no rudderless sailboat blown about by the wind. You aren't a cog in the wheel. You are a wrench in the wheel. You aren't... You aren't a prisoner anymore. You are a spirit-led saboteur. You're a ghost in the machine. You're a banana peel on a Mario Kart track. You are here to mess the system up. You've been ransomed. You've been set free from the world that the dragon, the, the world as the dragon wants it. And now out of that freedom, out of that grace, we can conquer by risky acts of defiance and sabotage, conquering, undoing the system set in place by the dragon, by the enemy occupation. It's an act of sabotage every time we tell the truth, even when it's inconvenient for us. It's an act of sabotage every time we nonsensically love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because we know that they're not the ultimate enemy. It's an act of sabotage every time we worship and rest while the rest of the world works itself to death and calls us to do the same. It's an act of sabotage every time we walk away from a conversation when it gets gossipy and slanderous. It's an act of sabotage every time we fight for justice, even when it actually costs us something. 
We know how the story will go. The dragon dies in the end. Revelation 20. The invasion that starts at Christmas lands the dragon a death blow in heaven that extends to earth when Jesus comes back in war mode and heaven and earth are reunited. And the full effects of our ransom, not only that we're set free from the dragon's prison, but that we're free to draw near to God who loves us and delights in us. Jesus in John 17, high priestly prayer, says, I'm doing this. I want that they may be with me where I am, his people. He wants to be with his people. That's why he did it. That's why he was born even into this world of war where as soon as he was born, there was a dragon ready to devour. That's why he did it, because he loves us and he delights in us and he wants us to be with him. That's the hope we have in this Advent season. That's the hope that we have and we glory, getting ready to glory in the Christmas invasion of the first Advent as we wait with certain certainty and, as Noah said before, actively wait for the full victory of his second advent. Let's pray. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. God, your Son did come and you ransomed us. Help us to live like it. In the, in the freedom and grace that that brings us, God, the world is cosmically war-torn, and we can feel that brokenness every day. In these last days of Advent, please remind us of the hope that we have and nourish us with your gospel as we commit acts of sabotage behind enemy lines by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Amen. I believe we're having our Jesse tree now.